This week as I was uh, working on sermon preparation, going through the lesson, uh, something odd and strange occurred to me. Well, it happens a lot, but this one specifically kind of stuck with me that if it wasn't for Jesus, I, I probably wouldn't know most of you. Um, I probably wouldn't call you my friend, and I don't want you to misunderstand that. Given any other place in time, uh, let me get to the right one. There. Given any other place in time, I, I think we could be very good friends. I think we could, at very least, be acquaintances. The reality is, without Jesus, so I'm not sure we would have ever had the opportunity to meet. I'm not sure I would live here. I'm not sure if you would live in close proximity. Probably never would have crossed paths to get to know one another. And I think about the way that we humans develop relationships. Sometimes it seems almost coincidental. Uh, all the more highlights God's relationship. And I think it calls for us to take a moment to consider the uniqueness of, of God's relationship. Now, now I'm going to just simply ask for you to try and get your head around this, and I, I know it's beyond human understanding, but from eternity, the three persons of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, have always enjoyed this very unique, dare I say this, extremely intimate relationship. Um, we hear about the love of the Father for the Son and the Son for the Father. We hear about the willingness of the Holy Spirit to submit himself to the will of the Father and to the Son. It, it is the perfect relationship. And, and this is the hard part. It's never not existed. Always God was here and always God enjoyed this relationship. What is mind-blowing for me is that this perfect relationship at a certain point in time and eternity, God chose to invite us into it. The perfection of this relationship, the intimacy of this relationship, God chose to create us, human beings, because he wanted us to enjoy him, and he wanted to enjoy us. And the way it was designed, the way it was created, is absolutely wonderful and amazing. A perfect relationship. God and his creation, the children worshiping and thanking their creator. Now, of course, we all know, and we're very much familiar with what happened to that relationship. The moment sin came into this world, it destroyed that perfect creation, and it put this huge crevice between us and God, and, and as a result, between us and each other. This amazing, perfect creation of God was detoured, but you also know that God didn't want it to go on like that. He didn't want to be separated from his creation, and so, of course, he promised and sent his son who bridges that gulf, who restores the perfection of that, that relationship to us and with each other. Now, most of us grew up learning that this is ultimately God's plan of salvation. But what I think many of us have not been taught, or maybe we never gave it much thought, is this is also God's amazing plan of sanctification, the restoration of the perfection with which we were originally created, and the ability for us to live in the presence of holy God and he us. Now, if sin had never been an issue in this world, sanctification would have never been a necessary component of that. But because of the reality of our Father's rebellion, truth is, this is what we're studying this season. There is the complicating factor of sin, because though the blood of Christ has restored our relationship with God, we still have to deal with the fact that we possess a sinful nature. And it creates for us this tension between the, new, the two natures, the old Adam that we inherit from our fathers, the sinful nature, the things that make us want to rebel against God, and this new man, this gift of our faith, 
this perfect creation which God has placed within us, which only wants to serve God, only wants to love God, only wants to express that love to each other. Our lesson this morning, as we delve deeper into the practical aspects of sanctification, now that we've got a fairly good handle on what the doctrine itself is, leads us into the situation of how can I deal with both of these natures at the same time? Because deep within us is this desire to be everything God created us to be, and then there's this terrible nature which wants to stand in the way of that to keep us from enjoying the perfection with which God created us. The lesson that we're going to study to help us through this, not only on a doctrinal level or a a theological level, but then also with applications for this day-to-day life comes from a letter that John wrote to early Christians. And we'll, we'll talk much more about that letter. But he also was concerned about Christians of his day. And so the Holy Spirit read him to light, write these things. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. He who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he's been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother. Now, as I read through this lesson, I would suspect that most of you had the same issue with it that I had as I read through it the very first time. It seems to present to us a, 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 a condition that just can't be met. There, there's this, this contradiction that can't be solved, at least in our human minds. And what it's explaining is, is the reality of these two natures that we possess. Because on the one hand, we are children of God. We're blood-bought children of God. Christ came and paid for our sins. And that, again, adopts us back into the family of God. So when those verses are being read, part of us can go, yeah, that's me. But then on the other hand, we still have this sinful nature which defies God. It is of the devil. And there are those moments in time when we rebel against God and what we know is truth to be. We do not measure up to the holy standard which God created for us and created us for. So then you read through those other statements like, well, that kind of describes me too. Am I a child of the devil? The way to solve this uh, controversy, if you will, the way to really work through this contradiction is first begun by actually understanding why God God had John write these words. And not just the purpose, but the people to whom he's writing. So let me begin by reminding you of a couple things about John's letters, and specifically this first letter. John actually writes these things towards the end of the first century, which immediately tells us a couple things. At this time, he's the last apostle who is still alive. All of the other apostles have either been martyred because of their faith, or they died from natural causes. Most traditions seem to indicate they were martyred. John, as far as we know, is the only one who lived uh, to a natural death. And and at this point, while he's getting much older, he's still very much alive and well. And he has been left as the sole apostle with the oversight of these seven churches in the area of Asia Minor. And as you read the names of those seven churches, it shouldn't be lost on us that those are the same seven churches that John addresses in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation. If nothing else, it teaches us how much he cared about these people and how much instruction and guidance they needed uh, as Christians still quite immature in their faith. Now, as John is overseeing and supervising the work of these churches, there, there are two concerns 
that come up for him, and he's inspired by God and compelled to write to them about both of these issues. Uh, the first is that uh, the churches were being inundated by many false teachers, one after the other. And uh, unfortunately, many of these Christians were starting to listen to what these false teachers were saying, and it was starting to have a, a terrible impact on their faith. Many of them were actually losing their faith, which led to John's second concern, and that's the way in which they were dealing with one another and treating one another. On many occasions, John would call them out for the fact that they weren't showing Christ-like love to their brothers and sisters within the church. And he does connect the dots why that's happening. It has to do with their too easily and quickly abandoning the truth and the message <clears throat> excuse me, of God's love. So the Holy Spirit has John write these words, and even in this opening line, you can, you can hear that these are concerns of his because he immediately starts out with one of his warnings about the false teachers. Don't let anyone lead you astray because that's actually what was happening. Now, he, he offers this warning in the context of this contradiction or this tension that exists within a human being between the old Adam, the sinful nature, and the new man, the faith nature, because then he goes on to talk about that. And, and why does he issue a warning like that uh, in that context? Well, there's a couple things we need to clarify so we don't misunderstand what John is saying, and so that we're all on the same page about what he is saying. The first thing I, I need to tell you is that when John talks about sin, he's talking about sin as we know it. He uses that word hamartia. Uh, to miss the mark, meaning that not a single person alive ever measures up to the perfection for which God created us. That's just a general truth, and we all recognize that. The thing we should understand is that John isn't ranking sins or trying to distinguish between one sin or another, like one group of Christians was sinning worse than another group of Christians. John's also dealing with the reality that all sin destroys the perfect relationship that God created for us, and not only with him, but with each other. And that's why there was this infighting and this poor treatment of each other. So John is speaking to all of them. It's the problem for all of us, sin. It's the reality that sin continues to want us to rebel against God. But on the other hand, we have this new spiritual nature, and that's the nature within us that wants us to serve God. So what is John talking about? Well, he's talking about the fact that within the group of these early churches, there were human beings trying to resolve this dilemma, this controversy, this contradiction on their own. And history has taught us that every time a human being tries to come up with a solution to a spiritual problem, we fail miserably. John was trying to reiterate for these early Christians that the only solution to our spiritual problems, this spiritual contradiction which exists within us, must come from God himself. And that answer always is and always has been Jesus Christ. He alone resolves our problem with sin. He alone restores our relationship with God. He alone restores our relationship with each other and gives us the guidance, and if you will, the mentoring as to how we are to express our love to each other. But Jesus is always the solution to whatever the problem might be. And this became the controversy, or if you will, the problem and these early churches. Why? Well, what John is dealing with is the false teaching known as Gnosticism. And you may or may not be aware of what Gnosticism is. I know I've spoken about it in previous sermons, but that's been a while ago. So maybe some of you have come across Gnosticism in other ways, like 
reading some of the modern philosophies. And I know I'm going to age myself on this one, but John Lennon was a proponent of Gnosticism. He was in no way a Christian. And as he looked at Christians, he thought the only thing close to being the right kind of individual was a Gnostic. And you can even read his quote. Probably more likely, though, you've heard about Gnosticism from either a documentary or maybe a show on the History Channel talking about what are these seven Gnostic Gospels. And the question is always raised, why are these books not in the Bible when the other ones are? And there's a lot of confusion and misunderstanding about how the books of the Bible came to be. Now, I'm not going to in any way, shape, or form suggest you run out and buy any of these books and read through them because they are false doctrine. And besides wasting your time, it's very clear why these weren't included in the, in the Bible. One is, is that they weren't inspired by God. And that quickly becomes apparent to us when you do know what's in there because most of what they contain stands in direct contradiction of what is clearly represented in the rest of Scripture. Probably better we would spend our time not simply by trying to figure out uh, Gnosticism on our own. I would like to take just a few moments then and, and show you what it was all about, and then you can get a better understanding of what John is dealing with in these early churches. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. The world we live in was created to be good, while it may seem broken in many ways, our world still reflects the creativity of a good God. But not everyone has always thought this. In the first centuries of the early Christian church, a rival movement began to rise up. From the cultural influences of Judaism, Greek philosophies, and even Christianity itself came Gnosticism. The Gnostics taught that the physical world we live in was evil because it was created by a smaller, malicious God, and that spiritual realities beyond the physical were good. At the time of death, Gnostics believed their souls would escape the evil physical world and go to the good spiritual one. And while longing to be part of a spiritual world might kind of sound right to many Christians, the apostles actually warned strongly against this kind of teaching. John called it the spirit of Antichrist. The Gnostics believed that if Jesus was a manifestation of the highest good God, then he could not have truly been part of the evil physical world. He therefore must not have a truly human body, but only seemed human. But John had already told us that Jesus, the Logos or Word of God, became flesh and lived among people. Jesus became a truly physical human person and was happy to do so because he had created the physical world good and came to restore it. The apostle gave this warning to the church about Gnostics. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, but every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. There is no biblical reason to believe that the physical body is inherently bad and that the human spirit is inherently good. Because we are created in God's image, our whole self is a good gift from God. But in sin, our whole self is set against God. The biblical truth is that Jesus became a human being in order to save the human race from within. Gnostic beliefs have led some people to treat the human body badly thinking of it as contemptible, denying its basic needs, and causing unnecessary psychological shame about basic feelings and urges. They wanted their souls to escape from their so-called evil bodies. They failed to see that a human being is where soul meets body in a unified whole. 
Jesus still lives in a human body to this day, his resurrection body. He teaches us to live well in our bodies now, as we hope for a day when we ourselves will be fully restored and fully good again in the kingdom of God. That's Gnosticism in a, a nutshell, and where it intersects with our study of sanctification is the confusion that it presents about these two natures. Remember, I had mentioned that every time mankind tries to solve a spiritual problem, we always fall miserably short. The human brain can't conceive how we could be both of these, uh, a nature that is completely corrupt and sinful, and a nature coexisting that is completely perfect and God-fearing. How can these two possibly coexist within one individual, especially after God's love has touched our lives? So the human solution to that was, well, everything physical must be bad, everything spiritual must be good. Now, when you go that route and when you want to use or try to use logic as a way to explain a, this controversy away, it undermines what God himself has taught us, and that's the only solution that works. You see, the human solution deprives us of the saving work of Jesus Christ. Gnostics did not believe that Jesus ever actually became human, that he took on our flesh and blood, which then undoes God's plan of salvation as well as his plan of sanctification, because this solution required God himself to sacrifice the perfect sacrifice his son, and the only way for that to happen would be for the Son of God to become fully human and to give his life for ours. Hopefully now you can understand why this was such a great concern for the Apostle John and why the Holy Spirit felt inclined to have him write an entire letter to these early churches in order to help them through not only their understanding of sanctification but also ultimately of their salvation. You see, from the very beginning, when sin destroyed our perfect intimacy with God and our relationship with each other, it has been mankind's deepest desire to get it back. That's why you hear people talking about their desire for world peace or justice for all, and these are good things. They were created to be part of our original existence. The problem is, is that never works. It always falls short of the perfection for which God has created us. The only thing that can work is God's answer. Now, so you understand what John is trying to do with these early Christians. He writes it in this phrase, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. The reason Jesus Christ, or I should say the Son of God, became human was to destroy, and he means to actually destroy what the devil had accomplished in this world and in our lives. The only way for that to happen was for God to actually sacrifice himself because perfection was created, perfection was required, perfection was demanded, and it's only through Christ that perfection is delivered. Now, not to bore you with church history, but the church finally got so fed up with the false teaching of Gnosticism, amongst other false teachings, that in the early part of the 4th century, they convened a council to finally come up with a statement of beliefs which would clearly represent what is in God's word. And this phrase, light of light, very God of very God, is part of this council's work, the Nicene Creed, which we confess on Communion Sundays. And when we confess those words to each other, we're acknowledging that our relationship with God happens 
only because of what God has done for us by becoming human and dying for us, and our relationship with each other can only attain the level for which God has created us because of this love and sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It also solves, if you will, a a couple other things. And I know sometimes these documentaries try to make this story or statement that it was this council that determined which book should or shouldn't be in the Bible. That couldn't be further from the truth. That had long ago been determined by the end of the first century. By John's last writing, the book of Revelation, the church fathers and even the laity understood clearly from what was within these books what belonged and what did not. And so the Gnostic Gospels that are being discovered and offered today add no value and certainly don't lead us to any place of perfection if one would choose to read them. Okay, so now we have John dealing with these early Christians and this false teaching. So how on earth can he share with them the solution which God himself offers? Well, no one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. That's a key phrase. The word born is, is the one that we translate typically as begotten. No one begotten of God. Or you think of it in terms of God's one and only begotten Son. In a spiritual context, it is what's recorded for us in Ephesians 2.8. And I didn't put the words all up there because I think you know them. It is by grace you are saved through faith. It's a gift from God. This is what truly being born again means or being rebirthed by God. We were spiritually dead because of sin. God brought us back to spiritual life through the gift of of faith. It isn't something that we humans do for God. It is something that God does for us. We, in our sinful nature, can't choose to follow God. That nature rebels against God. But God chose us, and he gives us the gift of faith, and that's what births this new nature, this new spiritual nature within us. That's what it means to be born again. Of course, you see the conundrum question, well, if I am born again, then Why do I still sin? And that brings us back to the dilemma John was helping these early Christians work through because you still have a sinful nature. While God has restored you perfectly in his sight and spiritually you do stand before God perfect and unsinful, the reality is is that we do still possess a sinful nature. God promises us the day we die or the day of our Lord's return, that nature will be stripped away and we will once again enjoy everything for which we were created just as our first parents enjoyed whatever time they had before sin to be exactly what God wanted them to be, to enjoy that perfect relationship of intimacy with God. And Adam and Eve, husband and wife, enjoyed a perfect intimate relationship with each other. We look forward to that day when we finally can become, once again, everything that God wanted us to be. But until then, he wants us to understand part of this new birth, and that's the other word, and you can see what it means. It's God leaving a bit of himself within us. We are spiritually rebirthed, and not unlike uh, children being born, we are, if you will, the descendants of our Father. We don't have holiness on our own. That's a holiness that comes from God. And the only way for us to continue to enjoy that blessing which he gives to us is to continue to remain in his truth and the word of his love. That's why John cautions so much against listening to the lies of Gnosticism because it does the same old thing. It peddles the same old garbage, a human solution which cannot work to a spiritual problem which humans themselves created back at the beginning of time. There is one other thought that we certainly should understand that John wants to share with these individuals, and it has to deal with the other of his two concerns, the lack of love that they were showing to each other because 
of the false doctrines which they were believing and were now deteriorating their faith. It also takes us to that area that sometimes I think has been the most uncomfortable of our sanctification series, and we're reminded of that by adding on the last verse of Ephesians that oftentimes, unfortunately, is left off, where God himself says, you were created in Christ Jesus to do works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. There's a level of accountability and responsibility that God has planted within us when he gives us this new spiritual nature. The beauty of it is, is the new man wants to do what God created us to do. The bad news is we still have to deal with that sinful nature which always tries to detour and get in the way of what God wants us to do. And so John wants these early Christians to remember that the only way to continue to be children of God is to go to God for his solutions, to go to God for his truths, to go to God for his love, and then to reflect that same truth and love to each other. Truth of the matter is, is if we never have a relationship right with God, if we don't understand how that intimacy with the divine works, we'll never be able to appreciate or actually work on the relationship that we share with one another. Even in a sinful world, even with a sinful nature, God says, I have placed within you the ability and strength, and I compel you to actually be this light and love that I have shown to you. Now, before I go on, and I'd like, what I'd like to do to kind of wrap this up is to take a couple pages out of John's letter to the early Christians, because like it or not, so much of that still is going on today. Maybe the best way for me to start to do that is by reminding you about the gospel lesson because there's deep and many truths within there. The first is how we deal with our sinfulness. And the reality is is that when we offer the human solution, look at God, what I'm doing for you, we're the one that would go home unjustified. It's the other man, the one who trusted in what God had done for him, including the Son of God becoming his human Savior to give up his life so that he could once again invite him back into the divine relationship. There's that side of it, and that's a truth that we dare not quickly dismiss. But there's something else within this parable that Jesus taught, and it has to do with the reality that we sinful human beings can only see what's on the outside. And we have to remind ourselves of that because that's vitally important when it comes to sanctification. When it comes to the works that God has created for us to do, it is not my job to look at your life and judge your works or your job to look at my life and judge my works. You see, what we are reminded is, is that God looks beyond the actions to the motivations as well. And God sees whether or not that comes from a heart of love, whether it comes from the new man, or whether it's maybe the old Adam masquerading as a child of God, when in fact the reality is within the heart is the evidence that that person is a child of the devil. I begin with these things because I want to make it clear how sanctification continues to be such an important part of our lives today, especially in the times in which we are now living. And I preface that because I want to use as an example something that happened this week. And before I go any further, I want you to understand I'm not choosing this because of the content of what it shows us. I'm choosing it because of the context of what it shows us. Now let me preface everything I'm going to say about this by telling you I don't care whether you get the vaccine or not. I'm not here to judge whether that's right or wrong. What I do know is is that you each need to speak to your doctors and use the common sense with which God gave you and make your best sanctified choice. For some people, that means you will get it. For some people, based on other concerns and conditions in your life, that means you won't. That's none of my business. And 
thankfully, we still live in a world, part of the world where that actually should still be your business. But that's not really what that's about. What this is about is to show you that Gnosticism is still very much alive and well today. And I have no personal critiques of this now governor of New York, but what does uh, bother me is when any human being presumes to speak on behalf of God. I hope it would offend you if I stood up here in front of all of you and said, God tells you to get the vaccine because I don't have the right to speak on God's behalf. You might think, well, that's ironic because you're up there preaching a sermon. I don't get to choose what I tell you about what I think God says. All I am called to do is show you what God says. That's why we spend the time going through the actual languages and words of God's word so that it's not my interpretation or my filtration. It's what God actually is saying to you and to me. I use this as an example because it reveals to us a much deeper problem which we are fighting against today. And we better be aware of it because of how serious and challenging it is. And please, again, do not misunderstand me. My heart breaks for all of the families that have lost loved ones due to the virus which we are now fighting. But do you understand how easily the devil has distracted us from the real problem? And the real problem is, is that this is happening not because of a virus that started somewhere in the world, but it goes much further back, all the way to the time of sin. God told Adam and Eve that if you disobey me, if you choose your own human solutions, you will die. And that's what continues to happen even in our day and age. And it's amazing to find how many human solutions are offered to that problem. And I'm not trying in any way, shape, or form to say you shouldn't prevent the things that harm health, or you shouldn't practice things that do. What I would tell you, though, is that sometimes we ought to just take a step back and ask ourselves what's going on. Because while we are certainly concerned about all the life that is lost, when is somebody going to raise the important question, how many souls are going to hell? Do you understand what the devil has distracted us from? Oftentimes what happens, even within the Christian churches, there is so much arguing and fighting about what to do Nobody's reminding each other about what God has actually created us to do. To reflect his light and his love to each other and to this world. And it would seem to me that during these darkest of times, this might be the greatest opportunity for us to actually live up to the creation for which God has made us. That while we're concerned about physical life, it means nothing compared to one's eternal life. And that ought to be our priority, and we ought to be taking this as an opportunity to tell others that there's no human solution to the problems that we're facing. And maybe the best way to begin is by taking a look at ourselves, because part of the distraction that the devil used is every time some new challenge, some new lie is shared, and I would include myself in this, is oftentimes we want to look at other people. Well, you shouldn't say that. You shouldn't do that. This is mis misinformation. You can't prove that. The problem is, is that my problem starts right here. I have a sinful nature that wants to rebel against God, and I know you do too. Part of what John is encouraging those early Christians is the same encouragement that we need today, that we are brothers and sisters in Christ created to reflect the perfect light and love of our God and to invite others to appreciate and enjoy the intimacy of the relationship that the God-man Jesus has given to us. Truth of the matter is, the devil's pretty smart. And sometimes when he distracts us with one thing, we fail to see what's really going on in another area. It's not your or my job to pick and choose which battle to fight. 
God has called us and created us to speak the truth, the whole truth, because it comes from God's love. I see a trend in the church among evangelical Christians, particularly younger evangelicals, but really, really broader. We have this tendency to pick and choose which cultural issues we're going to stand up and speak out on, uh, and then some we're going to sit down and be quiet on, usually based on those issues that are most comfortable and least costly for us to speak out on. So we, it is right for us to speak out against poverty and uh, sex trafficking. And I'm thankful for increased awareness of issues like that and the way people are speaking out on those issues. The danger, though, is if we speak boldly on issues like that, but then when it comes to issues like abortion or so-called same-sex marriage, Issues that are much more likely to bring us into contention with the culture around us we're much more likely to be quiet. And before we know it, our supposed social justice actually becomes a selective social injustice where we're picking and choosing which ones we are going to speak out on based on what's least costly to us in the culture around us. We've got to make sure to avoid that. The, the same gospel that compels us to combat poverty compels us to defend marriage. The same gospel that compels us to war against sex trafficking compels us to war against sexual immorality in all of its forms. And to see that the gospel is the foundation for why we approach all issues with consistency based on the truths of the gospel is something I, I think we need to hear and heed in our day. I'd like to take one more page out of John's book, if you would allow me to do so. And that is to address the fact that we have a sinful nature we need to continue to fight against. I, I keep using the phrase, we need to resist this part of us. And, and it's true. I love those moments in life when it, it, it is almost like what it was supposed to be. When your faith is active, my faith is active, and it's easy and it's fun to do everything God wants us to do. But the problem is, is I'll turn right around and in the next moment I'm doing the exact opposite of, of what I should. I need to admit this reality. I need to look to God for the solutions. I need to recognize that other people are fighting this problem and I need to be generous and willing to share the solution. And that solution is the one that God provides us. He gifts us with this perfect nature, this new nature, this reborn nature. And he does so that we can be in that relationship that God always wanted us to be in. And it's more than just coming to church. It's more than just singing songs. It's more just praying. It's every aspect of our lives. And that means you matter to me and hopefully I matter to you. But it means that this world matters to our God. And so we should avail ourselves or hopefully we feel compelled to share this truth and this love with others so that they too can appreciate and can enjoy the perfect relationship that God wants for them. Because it's more than coincidence. People live in certain places in certain times. God says he's done that so that they will in the end find him. And God has blessed us to be the people to lead them to that. And as always, the only solution is the divine solution. We share with them the one thing that we know has changed our lives and certainly our eternities. We share with them the one thing that makes all the difference. His name is Jesus, and he is light of light and very God of very God. So the Bible uses this word, and the word is sanctified. You see it throughout Scripture. A lot of times we see words, but we don't know what they mean. But if we break that word down, there's two really clear ideas that are laid out 
for us. One of those ideas is that as Christians being sanctified, we've been separated from sin. So our sin no longer controls us or defines us or enslaves us. Our identity is no longer wrapped up in what we do or don't do. The person of who I am is no longer determined by the person that I'm with or have been with or how many people I've been with or my sexual identity or my gender or my family name or my past or my present or even my future. What defines all those things is the fact that I'm in Christ. And that has to be the starting point for all my relationships. My relationship with Jesus is what separates me from my sin. And so it's the starting point for every other relationship. It has to be. So I got I to gotta understand who I am in terms of my relationship with Jesus. When I get that right, then I'm understanding the process of sanctification.